right. Well, if you want to open your Bible, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 4 today. And uh, if you've been reading together with me or reading ahead or anything like that, you see Deuteronomy 4 is very different than Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Um, and this is actually, I'm, I'm excited about today because it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a good practice in um, hermeneutics. We'll talk about that. Uh, we're going from narrative to commands, but we're doing commands from, from Moses to the, first, to the second generation of Israel, not to the church. But then there are direct correlations to that in the New Testament. So I want to I use this today both as um, a way to understand and interpret the Old Testament because you're going to be jumping back from narrative to command, from narrative uh, to exhortation, things like that. Um, and I think that's good to see because sometimes understanding the Old Testament can get fuzzy and weird, you know. And I think we talked about that at the very beginning of this. Like we'll take some command. Will be that that applies to us, but then other things we're like, well, not that, you know. And you don't just pick and choose. Uh, we, we, when you read the Old Testament, I mean, the Old Testament has many implications and applications to our life. The Old Testament has many things that we learn about who God is, uh, and almost all of the the moral stuff like that is reiterated by Christ or anyone in the New Testament. Um, but when you have commands that are directly given to Israel. Uh, both for their worship, for how they run their nation, uh, and, and even the moral, all these things, those, those are for them, not us. Does that make sense? And the law has been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, the law is no longer, uh, we're, not, we're not submissive to the law in that sense. And so we don't go take certain things and be like, uh, I like that, I'll apply that. But this other thing, well, we're not doing that. Um, you just let it be fulfilled. And at the same time, learn from it. Paul talks about that. We talked about that. Joel read it this morning. You know, these things have happened as examples to us, and as you look at them, you understand what happened, and then you apply that to your life. Um, and, like I said, at the same time, many of the commands, whether it's, you know, uh, be a light to the world, you're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, I mean, those things are directly then spoken to the church in the New Testament, and are there's direct commands that we have either from Christ or from New Testament epistles. I'm getting ahead of myself, but we'll talk about it when we get there. Because things change today in Deuteronomy 4. It's different than Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Because now we're at the end of the first exposition. And at the very end of the first... So, let me back up. If you weren't here, we're on the plains of Moab. This is the second generation of Israel. They're about to cross the Jordan River and go in and take the land that is west of the Jordan. The, the promised land that God has given to the nation of Israel. Moses is basically... Uh, expounding the law and giving three sermons, three discourses, three uh, um, uh, exhortations here to the Israelites. Uh, this is the end of the first one. The first one is chapters 1 through 4. Uh, and then we'll have the, the, there's two more after this. Um, but the first one is really a focus on what the second generation of Israel has witnessed and seen, both from their parents and then their own their own battles against Og and um, uh, Sion uh, uh, on the east side of the Jordan. He's reminded of all that. And then here at the very end of the first sermon, there's a charge, an exhortation. that He's saying, make sure that you do these things. And so, um, uh, and then after that, like I said, there's, there's going to be another sermon uh, and then another sermon. And so you're going to see application points in all of this. Um, but as we talk about that, like I said, I want to make sure that we're clear-minded in how we understand this. This is Moses talking to the children 
of the people who came out of Egypt, the second generation of Israel, because the first generation has passed away because, they, uh, because of their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. And, so he, and he's telling them that you're about to go in and take the land, and you must do these things. Um, so this is not commands for the church. This is commands for those people about to cross the Jordan and what they must do to be faithful to God and not forget what he's told them. Like I said, many of these commands are things that we should do as well. But we're going to look at some of the New Testament verses that say the exact same thing to us, the church. But you are not the second generation of Israel. You do not ever have the call of God to go make war with people and take a land back from or, or to, to punish other people. And the, what he's saying here is not applicable directly in that way for any of us. But there are application points, implication points, and New Testament commands that are directly applicable, and that's what we're going to talk about today. That being said, this is what, how I'm going to divide up Deuteronomy 4. There's a lot here. I, I, was, I was looking at, basically I'm going to give you five mini-sermons today, and the next week we'll do the other half. <laughs> but the, the first half of it, 1 through 24, is just exhortation after exhortation after exhortation. And we're going to just, and just bullet points. Moses is like, this is what you must do. This is what you must do. This is what you must do. In, in verse 25 through 40, he begins to talk about a, a, a future that, that is not where they're at now. He talks about in the latter days, these, will hap- this, these things will happen. And so Moses, before they even begin to take the land begins to tell them what they're going to do after they take the land. They're going to rebel against the Lord. They're going to forsake him. He's going to cast them out of the land, but he's going to bring them back again, and he's going to do things. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But this is the, the second half of Deuteronomy 4 is just a taste. It's like a little bitty glimpse and a little bitty taste of the millennial kingdom and the new covenant promises that God will do to redeem the nation of Israel forever, which is really cool. But we're not there yet. Today we're talking about going in and taking the land for the first time, if you want to say it that way. Um, and then there's the conclusion, which we'll probably tag on to next, week, um, next week's uh, message. So today we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. And we're going to look at these five exhortations that Moses gives to the Israelites before they cross the Jordan. Now, if you weren't here or just for a real quick... Deuteronomy 1 is basically a, a, a historical narrative talking about the first generation who came out of Egypt and then how they got from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. Um, and then when they were there, sent out the spies, rebelled against the Lord, didn't trust him, and the Lord cursed that generation and said, you will not inherit the land. It will be your children that go in. Only Joshua and Caleb will go in. That's, that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 are a of the second generation, reminding the second generation of all the things the Lord had done from Kadesh Barnea after the 30-something years of, of, of wandering the desert, from Kadesh Barnea around Edom through Moab and Ammon, uh, and how they had defeated Sion uh, and Og, and how they had, uh, the Lord had delivered them, and now they are on the plains of Moab. And so that's what chapter 2 and chapter 3 are about, reminding them of their faithfulness and what God has done so that they will be courageous and go do the same thing on the other side of this river. Um, so that's what chapter 2 and 3 are about. Um, and then we, at one point in chapter 2, this is a good marker to highlight in your Bible and just to see. Uh, in Deuteronomy 2.14, uh, when they crossed the Zered Brook or the Wadi Zered, the, the, the gorge, the valley that the brook had carved out, 
Uh, it says at that time, um, uh, until we crossed over the brook Zare, there was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. So this is kind of like a, a marker. The first generation is gone. And from that point forward, the second generation is it's all about them. And so the, the first generation is dead. Second generation are the ones that went and defeated um, Sion. Uh, king of Heshbon in the land of the, the Moabites or the part of the Ammonite kingdom. And then they went north and defeated Og. So that was all second generation stuff. The reason I'm pointing that out again this week is because it's going to come into play with one of the things he says right here at the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, so crossing the brook Zared marked the end of the rebellious generation. Um, and crossing the Arnon River, which is at the top of Moab, marked the beginning of Israel's taking of the land. Uh, so that would be the second generation. And just to kind of sum up 2 and 3, and to get you, this is where we're going to start at today. This is a summary statement in the middle of chapter 3 that really tells what chapter 2 and chapter 3 are all about. And he says, Thus we took the land at that time from the hands of the two kings of the Amorites, who are beyond the Jordan, from the valley of Arnon on the south to Mount Hermon, which is the far north part of um, Og's kingdom. It says um, Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, and the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the plateau, all of Gilead, all of Bashan, as far as Seleka and Edrei, uh, and we talked about those are probably uh, the eastern borders of Og's kingdom, uh, the cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. And so that's just saying they took all of this land. So basically Israel has now taken all of this land. They divided this land up. Reuben took part of Sion's kingdom and Gad took part of Sion's kingdom. He had this little strip that goes up to the Sea of Galilee. Um, and, uh, and then uh, half of Manasseh has taken the kingdom of Og. And Israel has settled. This is two and a half tribes of Israel that has settled on the east side of the Jordan River. And now they're going to leave their possessions, their families, and all their cattle there. And they're going to cross with their brothers over on the west side of the Jordan to take the land. And when that is done, they'll come back. But that's where we're at right now. It just kind of shows you what's going on. And now we're at the end of the first sermon. And Moses is talking to these people. And he's charging them with these exhortations to obey the Lord. And that's what this is all about. Obedience to the Lord. Um, and and um, this is uh, one of the greatest conclusions and applications of any sermon you'll ever hear. You're going to hear it, and it's going to be inspirational to you because it's the same thing for us. Um, our obedience and submission to him are, are, are everything uh, for us, and we're striving to listen to every word he says and obey him. Um, and so we go from narrative in the last three chapters to exhortation here. And like I said, this is a good exercise in hermeneutics uh, because... You, you, you look at exhortation different than you would uh, a narrative. Um, and so basically, and actually, Joel here, if you look over at 1 Corinthians, I, I started writing this down when Joel was doing his sermon. Uh, Joel kept saying things, and I'm like, oh, it's so good. <laughs> uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, and we've talked about this before because we were studying this when we were talking about legalism. But in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 12, Paul's talking about Israel. And again, this is this is... This is how you look at the Old Testament and you look at these things that we're talking about today. He says, now these things happened as examples for us for this purpose so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. That's important. And then he goes through all the different things that happened both to the first generation and one thing here that happened to the second generation that we're going to talk about today. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act 
immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. That's just a good like, way to describe how to read the Old Testament. These things have happened for, to them as an example for us, but they're there for our instruction. Um, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, and this is important, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So I think that's a very good reminder to us, the church, as we read these things and we see what happened both to the first generation and even the second generation after they defeated Og and Sion. They made a big mistake before they crossed the Jordan. And it's easy to look at that and be like, how could they do that? They could do it the same way you would and I would, in their situation, don't ever think too highly of yourself, but remember what we have here. See these examples and flee far, get away from idolatry, away from immorality, away from sin, and cling close to the Lord. And look at the example of Israel and let that sink in as you read this. Uh, but the last thing you want to do is walk away from this thinking, man, they're horrible. What's wrong with these people? You know, it's like we, we look at ourselves. And so today, uh, here is what we're going to look at there's five exhortations to obey the Lord. And that is the main command, to obey everything that they have heard. Um, and what we're going to see today is, is these five points. And like I said, we're just going to fly through them. Um, but the first one is that success is dependent on submission. Success is dependent on submission. Obedience validates the message of, we would say, the gospel. And they, at their time, the law that they have. Uh, number three, respect for the Lord or neglect. So either respecting and obeying his commands or neglecting his commands has generational effects. And so what we do with our children will affect not only them, but their children and their children and their children and their children. So remembering that our respect or neglect of God's commands has generational effects. Number four, that we must guard ourselves from idols. And number five, um, that, that they do not forget his covenant. But like I said, I think you can likewise apply that same principle uh, to the church in a different way. Not the Mosaic covenant, but the new covenant and the things that the Lord has uh, given us. So all that being said, these exhortations, we're going to see what Moses is telling. So just to frame it up, we want to see what is Moses telling this generation of people so that they will faithfully cross the river and do what God's called them to do. And then what are the application points for us because these things all apply in stated this way. Um, and you're going to see that as we read this. So uh, the first thing is this, that success is dependent upon submission. If you look at verses or chapters 2 and 3, basically it's all about remembering what your parents did. Your parents did not trust the Lord. Uh, they failed to keep his command. I'm sorry, in chapter 1. They leaned on their own understanding. It cost them receiving the promised land. And now they're dead because of their failure to listen, to submit, and to obey. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 and 3 are, remember the victories that you just witnessed. Uh, You did listen to the Lord. You did obey Him. And the Lord delivered two powerful Amorite kings and kingdoms into your hands. Um, and, uh, and, and, And according to the text... I think it's a good bet to say that there was no even Israelite death in the battle. Someone came up to me and asked me about that last week. So I started reading through different things. To, and, and most of the time, I mean, again, it doesn't mean that every time there's no death mentioned means there's no death. But when there are deaths, they're always mentioned, which makes me think that when there's no deaths mentioned, 
They may have defeated all of these kingdoms and had all these battles without a single loss of life, which again is an amazing, miraculous deliverance of the Lord, Um, especially when you look at who they were fighting, these giants who were powerful that the nations around them were afraid of. And so he's basically saying to them, because you did listen and you did obey. And you're going to see this over and over and over. In chapter 4, verse 1, listen and perform. In chapter or verse 2, do not add or take away, but keep these commands. In, chapter, in verse 5, I have taught you, so you should do these things. In, in verse 6, keep and do these commands. In verse 9, give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. In verse 10, do not forget these commands, but make them known your children and and they may teach their children in verse 14 the lord commanded me to teach you that you might perform in verse 15 watch yourself carefully and then verse 23 watch yourself carefully do not forget so over and over and over and over it is a call both to 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 be beware to watch yourself to keep his commands this is the most important thing their success is completely dependent upon their submission to god That's it. That's how they'll take the land. And so that is the first thing we want to look at. So read together with me, and then we'll dive into these first four verses. So he says, Now, O Israel, so in light of everything we just talked about, all the things we just reviewed, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live, go in, and take possession of the land, which the Lord, the the God of your fathers, has given to you. You shall not add to the word, which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I have commanded you. We'll pause right there and look at the the first point. Actually, I had a slide with just that. So the first thing we want to look at here is is that success and strength are going to come only from listening to what he has told them and obeying it, performing it, doing it. When you look at this, when he talks about listening here, it means to pay close attention to. To pay close attention and and hear everything God says and then respond in conformity to what he has given you. It's, 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 It's very important to understand. It's not just hear these words, but it is hear these words and then act in absolute conformity to all he says. He talks about statutes and judgments over and over in these, uh, in these, actually all through Deuteronomy, but especially uh, in chapter 4 here. And both of these just express uh, God's revealed will to the Israelites. You can look at the difference between what is a statute, what is a judgment, but both of them uh, are authorized rules. They're commands of the Lord. They're promises of God. Uh, they express both an attribute of justice and judgment, but the main point is, is what he has said is what he means, and you must listen to all that God has commanded us. And so he says, listen to these commands in order to perform them. Uh, that's just the way the NASB translated it. It just means to obey, to obey, to do. Uh, to, so the, so there's, the purpose is not just to know it. It's not just a head knowledge, but it's a conformity of your will and your actions to God's will. And so he says, listen to everything God said. Uh, I'm teaching you these so that you can go and do them. And then he gives them three things that are the result of their submission. They will live, they will go in, and they will take possession. Now, again, uh, we'll talk more about this soon with the second part of this chapter. But when he says you will live, I mean, he's literally talking. It's not just saying, oh, eternal life. And you don't just look at it and go, oh, he means live eternally. He's like, no, your, your temporary life is completely dependent on your obe- obedience to God. And there is a very tangible example that just happened in the prior weeks that they should see and go, he's right. 
I mean, not only did their parents all die because their parents didn't listen to the Lord, but they just had many of their own contemporary uh, friends and families die for the same reason. And so living in this life is dependent on obeying him. Going into the land is dependent on obeying him. Again, his par- their parents didn't do it. They're not going in. And taking possession of the land. The only way they're going to defeat these kings is by submitting to God. Not submitting, not obeying means all those things are impossible for them. And again, he mentions the land that they're going to take, which is just a re-emphasis that God is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant through their faithfulness and their obedience as they go and take this land. This is land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob many, many years ago. All the land, he says, I will give to your descendants forever. So this is the beginning of him giving them the land. Uh, but they must inherit it forever, which is part the second half of Deuteronomy 4. Uh, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I have given you this land. So again, this is stuff that, that um, God had promised hundreds of years before. He says he made an everlasting covenant uh, that the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, he's going to give to him as an everlasting possession. And so here, the, the Israelites, the second generation, he's telling them that their success in taking the land, going in and living is all dependent on their submission and obedience to him. He also says that they are not to add to the word or take away from it, but they may, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. In other words, Moses is telling them, don't tamper, don't tamper with the law. Don't tamper with the word. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to emphasize some of it and neglect the other parts of it. It's what, what the Lord revealed is what he has revealed. It can't be improved. It can't be diminished. It can't be partially followed or half-heartedly obeyed. Uh, we can't pick and choose what we believe, obey, and trust. I mean, we understand that from New Testament, right? But it was the same thing for them. Uh, keeping the commandments means precise and exact obedience in the way that God has prescribed it, not in the way that you want to interpret it. And so the big thing is what did God mean when he said this, not what do I think he means or what do I want him to mean, but what does he mean? Now, we have the same, really the same admonition uh, in Revelation 22, at the very end of the word of God. Uh, he says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, speaking specifically of Revelation, but I think it applies to the whole written word, that if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. You don't want that. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in the book. I mean, that's talking about eternal reward. And again, so there's very, very fearful warning. Don't ever add to or take away from the word. Now, again, that's what Moses is telling the, the first or the second generation here. Um, and the other thing we know that I think is another applicable point here is that those who have true faith, those who believe in the Lord, whether it's the second generation that's about to cross into Israel or whether it's us, true faith is, is verified by those who keep his command. They don't add to, they don't take away, and they obey his word. And again, in the New Testament, Christ said this over and over and over Christ in John 8, 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Again, it has to do with obedience. You're not saved by obedience, but the faith that you have is proven by your submission to and obedience to every word that he has commanded us. Not adding to or taking away, but submitting to his word. John 12, Jesus again says, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I don't judge him, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. But he who rejects me 
and doesn't receive my sayings, the things he's revealing in the New Testament, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So God's word is everlasting. God's word is our standard. So in the same way that they had to obey and keep the, the, the word of the Lord to be successful in their current endeavors, we also must obey in order to have eternal life. Like that is the, the result of true faith. Again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandment and keeps them is the one who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He who does not love me does not keep my words. It's just plain and simple. That is the, the test of or the verification of or the fruit of true faith. And then First John 2, the same thing. John uh, talking about what Christ had said when Christ was here and applying it to the church says, By this we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. So again, Moses is talking to Israel and he's telling them they have to keep his commandments to be able to live, go in and take the land. And at the same time, we have the exact same thing said to us when it comes to being the church. Those who keep his commands, that is proof that you have eternal life and saving faith, that you will inherit the the things of God, the things of Christ that he gives to us. And so it's just a reminder, in the same way that Israel ought to hear these words and be very sober-minded and take this seriously, so should we. Now, that being said, let's go back to what he says after this. So they have to listen and perform. They They cannot add to or take away. They must keep his commandments exactly like he said. And then he tells them, And you know why. He says in verse 3, Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Every one of you. Now, some of you may have read along with us or when we did our review of numbers, it tells the whole story of what he's talking about here with Baal Peor. We don't have time to read the whole thing today, but this comes from Numbers 22 to 25. I'm going to read you the beginning and the end, and I'll tell you the story. But at the very beginning of Numbers 22, uh, this is after they've defeated Og. This, This is at the end of Deuteronomy 3, if you want to say it that way. They've defeated Sion. They've defeated Og. They've divided the land. They've returned. They've come down to the plains of Moab. They're waiting to go over the Jordan. So this, this has happened, like, I, we don't know the exact time, but weeks before Moses is saying this word. This is very, very recent history. Uh, and it says that the sons of Israel journeyed. They camped on the plains of Moab but beyond the Jordan. And so that's where they are currently, as we're doing this at Deuteronomy, opposite of Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw the Israel, what he had done, they had done to the Amorites. You know what they've done to the Amorites. They destroyed all their kingdom, uh, killed everyone, and took all. Um, and it says, uh, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. So they're terrified. Now, remember, Israel just walked right through Moab, didn't touch them. God has commanded Israel not to touch Moab. Now, think about that. God is giving Moab protection. But Balak, in his first lack of belief in the Lord, but then second fear is going to incite God's wrath on Moab that was unnecessary, if you want to say that, because Israel wouldn't have touched Moab. They would have just crossed the Jordan and gone and taken the land, but Balak comes up, and Balak, but this is all the Lord's plan. Uh, Balak hires, let's see, it says, uh, Mo, he said to the elders of Midian, now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. Again, the Amorites were way more powerful, way more fortified than the people of Moab. 
Israel could easily just go down there and take Moab like that, you know, except for God wouldn't let them. There's no way they actually could have taken Moab because God told them not to. So Balak, son of Zippor, was the king of Moab at the time. He sent messengers to Balaam. You know the story, Balaam and the donkey. So he sends messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor. Um, He comes up. Uh, he shows them the people that had covered the surface of the land. He says, they're living opposite of me. He says, please come curse these people. They are too mighty. Uh, if you curse them, I may be able to defeat them and to drive them out of the land. So Balak, the king of Moab, wants Balaam to curse them. If you know the story, from that point forward, Balaam blesses them like three times and even prophesies about the Christ the last time and what Israel will do ultimately. You know, it's just a, it's a really cool story. But it ends bad because in Numbers 25... So after all that's done, Balak's like, you won't curse him, get out of here. Balaam leaves, uh, and, and nothing happens in that sense. Uh, we know later that Balaam had a part of this, uh, inciting this, this, this plan that ends up happening. doesn't matter. Let me focus on Numbers 25 here. So it says, while Israel remained there at Shittim on the plains, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. So the Israelite men began to... to, to commit indecent act of immorality with the women of the Moabites. Uh, it says, for they invited the people to sacrifice uh, the sacrifices of their gods. And the people, the Israelites, ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. This is the second generation. These are the ones that were just faithful and took the land. This is not their fathers. So right after they did all that, it's just like, you know, remember the first generation, Moses up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments while they're down there worshiping the golden calf. Well, here the second generation, right after watching the faithfulness of God deliver them and, and uh, uh, all the, the, the Amorite kings, they, they, they get wrapped up in the world, immorality, idolatry, and here they are. And it says, um, and so the Lord was angry. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and ex- execute them in broad daylight before the Lord. So the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. So the heads of the tribes and the judges of each tribe basically went through and, 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 and executed everyone in their tribe that had connected themselves to Baal during this time. It's a test. It's a, it's a testing of the Israelites. Um, the Israelites uh, um, followed Baal like immediately because of their own lust of their flesh and things like that. And at the very end of that chapter, actually... Again, this is a side note, but that's where Phineas stood up and, and went and, uh, and, and, and uh, executed God's wrath and killed the guy. And then God makes the covenant with Phineas. And it's the priestly covenant that you will forever have. Your descendants will be the priests uh, before me. So that's a, another story for another day, but it's really cool. But it's right in the middle of this. But the very end, it says those who died in the plague were 24,000, which is exactly what uh, Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 10. So all that being said, this is the second generation. It's good to know that. Those who did not keep his word on the plains of Moab in that little short period of time are not alive anymore. And so when he says, you've got to keep his word or you will not live, they knew what he meant. This is not, he's not talking about eternal life. That is part of it. He is talking about the fact that you just watched 24,000 of your people die because they uh, attached themselves to Baal of Peor, and they went after the lust of the flesh, um, and they intermingled with the people of Canaan. He says, even though uh, even those from the second generation who played the harlot with the daughters of Moab and joined themselves to Baal of Peor were slaughtered by God. And so God made his point, just as obedience in the Lord in the past 
resulted in life, so obedience in time to come would guarantee ongoing life. And so they, ha- they knew when he said that your success in these things means is dependent on submission to me. They knew exactly what he meant. They had their fathers, their parents, who were not obedient to the Lord, were not able to go in. They're all dead. And they just had their, their friends around them who uh, attached themselves to Baal of Peor, and they're all dead. And so he's like, make sure that you listen to everything. Don't add to it. Don't take away. Keep everything that I've commanded you. Go in and perform it. I will take care of you. But to forsake him is the worst thing ever. I was going to, I meant to have this picture up here where I told you the story. That's the plains of Moab. We talked about that last week. This is the view from Mount Nebo. The plains of Moab, that's where Moses died. So this is kind of like the last thing he would have seen. The Dead Sea's down here on your left. The Jordan River runs up that way. And that's the land that they're going to take. So they would have been down here on this side of the Jordan River uh, as Moses is giving these sermons. I found this picture too. It's an aerial view from the other side. And it it was unique because there weren't many from this side. But you can kind of see the, that's the, oh, I forgot the mountain range. Does anybody remember the mountain range that Nebo's a part of? Forgot it. Anyway, it's like Appalachian mountain size, and Nebo is over here. So that's where we're standing looking down at the plains. But you can see, this is, these are the plains of Moab. So somewhere here, the Jordan, or the Jericho's right over here, and here's the Jordan River going up through there. That's where these sermons were given, and that's where they were at. That's where they would have attached them. That's where they committed immorality and they were slaughtered and all that kind of stuff. So that's the the scene of where they were at. So their success is dependent on their submission to the Lord. That's the first point. And like I said, likewise, it's the same thing for us. We are striving for obedience and submission in all things, not adding to or taking away, but listening to every word that he speaks and following him. Secondly, the second thing we want to see here is, and the rest of these are quicker than the first one, Uh, obedience validates the message. And what I mean by that is what he says here. Obedience validates the message. In verses 5 through 8, the next thing Moses tells them, the next point of application is this. He says, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments. We just talked about that. Just as the Lord my God commanded me. So Moses has been faithful to, to tell them exactly what God told him. He says that you should do thus in the land where you're entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes. There are others who will hear the words that God has given to Israel, and they will see the way that Israel listens to and submits to his word and the wisdom and understanding they have. And he says, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? The point that Moses is making here is their obedience to what God has commanded them will be the validation or the proof that the message that they have is God's word or is powerful or is needed by the nations. Again, if you look back at Exodus 19, God called Israel to be a holy nation, to be a kingdom of priests. They were supposed to be, if you want to say it in New Testament terms, the light of the world by the way that they lived and according to the law that he had given them. And he's saying, if you go in and you keep and do these things, I'm telling you, others will see. And that will cause them to go. 
this is the true God. The message that they have is the message. It's, it's evangelistic. Their obedience is evangelistic. Um, and so the second uh, command here is, or the second uh, exhortation is your obedience will validate the message that you have. He says, I have taught you statutes and judgments. Again, we talked about that. These are God's words. As the Lord God commanded me, um, you know, uh, Moses' Moses's role for them was the role of like your pastors and your shepherds here. There, it's a terrifying thing to be in that place where you're standing before God's people and you're saying, God said this. And so, again, that's the fear that I have when I stand up here, the fear that Shane has, the fear that any man of God ought to have is like when we're standing up here talking to people and going, God said this. We want to, I mean, it's terrifying. You're like, God better have said this, right? And I don't want to add to or take away from this. And so you want to stand up here clear-minded. And again, I know in the talking, you can give an opinion, you can give an illustration, you can give a story, something like that. But the point is, is you better make sure that you're conveying what God has conveyed. And you're making clear what God has made clear. That's the role of the prophet or the pastor or the missionary. That's what you're striving to do. And so Moses said, what God has given me, I have given to you. What God commanded me, I've given to you, and I told you what to do. And it's just a reminder, too, even for all of us, that we don't have the freedom to say what we want to say. We don't have the authority to decide what we want to do or to choose to teach whatever we want to teach. We always are striving to um, uh, uh, say exactly what he said and explaining exactly what he has explained to us clearly so that we can grow uh, in our understanding and immaturity. Uh, we can't ignore what he says. We can't change what he says. And that's what Moses is basically telling them. I've taught you what he said. He's given this to me. I've given it to you. You must do it. Keep it and do it. And those are important words too. When he says keep them, it means to, to preserve them, to guard them, to protect them, to watch over them. Uh, in other words, God's word is very, very important. It's, it's a very valuable treasure, both to you personally and for all of the world. So we must keep and treasure and guard this word that he has given to us. But we do that with the purpose of doing it, of, of obeying it. Uh, just like James says, faith without works is dead. So we cannot neglect God's word, ignore God's word, carelessly keep God's word. It must be guarded and treasured and then obeyed. And he says, if you do this, this is wisdom. And in wisdom here, it just means, it means an understanding or a skill that comes from experience. There's no such thing as wisdom without the experience of applying and doing. Um, and so he's basically saying, apply this and do this, and you will gain wisdom, discernment, and understanding. In fact, again, we know that even from the New Testament, and you know that from life. The understanding and true wisdom are always formed through obedience, through application. Um, and so it's the continual practice uh, that gives you, and, and the fruit of obedience is wisdom and discernment and understanding. So the essence of wisdom, he's basically saying, is conformity to God's will. Wisdom is thinking like him. Wisdom is conforming our thoughts to his thoughts and letting our thoughts and words and actions be retrained to imitate his will and his understanding. That's what we're striving for as believers. And if and when we do that, not all the world, much of the world will scoff, but there will be people that see your life and then hear the words that come out of your lips. And they understand that you, that, that you have practiced wisdom because they see the fruit. Again, think about it. Like we, we talk about with our families, right? 
when you teach your children God's word, but then you practice the opposite and you're practicing hypocrisy in the home, whether you are exasperating your children, you're basically, they can still come to the Lord, but it will be despite you, you know, in spite of your, your hypocrisy, they can still come to Christ. But our job is to exemplify Christ in the home so that the words that we speak match the lives that we live, and that becomes a source of wisdom and a source of light for our children. So it's the same thing here. He's saying, go into the land, do what you've been commanded, and the, the nations will see this, uh, and that will cause uh, them to them to, uh, to, to see the, the truth of, of the words that I'm giving you and the validity of the God who has delivered you. Um, and so it's basically evangelism in their example. Uh, he, uh, you know, this, I, I threw this in here too. In Hebrews 5, uh, 12 through 14, the author of Hebrews is writing to the church and reminding them of both the... It's, it's, um, He's admonishing them for their lack of practice, but he's telling them it's practice that leads to discernment and wisdom. He says, you ought to at this time be teachers. So he's saying, you've heard these things so, so many times. I mean, this is, this is good for us as a church. You've heard the truth. You are in one of the greatest churches on the planet, and you hear truth, solid truth, every week. And you probably listen to sermons throughout the week and doing Bible studies and going to women's Bible study and going, I mean, you are immersed in wisdom and truth. And, and, and I think it's the same thing for these people. And he says, but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. Um, and he says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. That's a key right there. There's, there's a lack of un- knowing it and the lack of practicing it. You're not accustomed to the word. And so even though you've been like swimming in truth, you still have some, you need somebody to tell you, okay, here's what you need to do. Okay, here's what you need to do. Okay, here's what you need to do. And you're dependent on milk and you're dependent on someone reminding you over and over of the elementary principles. Not that those are insignificant, but that, that you should have grown in the place that you're at. And he says, if you're still there, you're an infant. But solid foods for the mature because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So again, Moses is telling this second generation, you must go over and perform and do and obey. In doing so, you will be an example of wisdom and understanding. And others will see the wisdom applied in your nation, and that will cause them to believe in the God that has delivered you. How we live does have implications on the words that we speak and the message that we give. You can't go out and evangelize the lost if you're living like the lost the rest of your life. You've got to be living a holy life. So that's the second point. Obedience validates the message that we give. Like I said, the way to apply that to you is you're going to share the gospel with others. I mean, you've got to share the gospel. That's our calling on this planet. But you can't share the gospel without living a holy life because all you do is, is undermine the very thing that you're telling other people to follow and obey. You actually become a, a source of derision uh, rather than um, a source of, of uh, validating the truth. The third point he makes is in verses 9 through 14. And again, this has direct application to us. Respect and neglect have generational effects. This is weighty for anyone that has children um, and, uh, and, and ought to be weighty for anyone that wants to have children Uh, But the next thing he says is this. He says, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. Listen to this. 
so that you do not forget the things that your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your I'm sorry all, all the days of your life but make them known to your sons and your grandsons we'll we'll stop right there before we get into verse 10 so give heed to yourself keep your soul diligently for, for this reason so you don't forget and these things will not depart from your heart and then make them known to your sons and grandsons. Again, it's, it's reminding us that what we do with God's word will affect our children. Um, that when he says, give heed here, again, it's an imperative command, and it's basically saying, watch, preserve, guard, keep yourself. Uh, when he says keep, again, it's the same, the same idea. And this is used six times in Deuteronomy 4. This is very, 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 very important for the Israelites to understand. And us. Be very diligent and give heed to yourself. Keep your soul diligently. He says the same thing twice for emphasis. And when he talks about your soul, he's just talking about you, your whole life, your person, all that you are. Don't make it like spiritual and then you got the physical. This is you. Keep yourself diligently. And when he says diligently here, it's the word that just means strength, force, abundance. Be very, very purposeful about keeping your soul. And, and how do you uh, keep your soul or guard your life or guard yourself? He says, you keep your soul so that you do not forget and so that these things do not depart from you. The way that if we are not diligently keeping our soul steadfast to the word of God, uh, then, then these things happen um, that we basically begin to forget the things that God has called us to and, we, and they depart from our mind and from our heart. They're not part of our life. Again, the, the life of the Christian is an ongoing practice of the truth of God's word. It should be always refining you, always washing you, always changing you. When you go through periods of time where you're just you know, living off the fumes of the former drive that you once had, or you're just living off the convictions that other people have, but the word of God is not directing you directly and convicting you directly, then these are the things that will happen to you. First, you'll forget. Uh, we forget by neglect or by suppression. Sometimes we forget by putting away. You know, we are convicted. We do have conviction about something, but we don't act on those convictions. We suppress truth, and in doing that, we forget. But many times, it's just carelessness. You're just living carelessly. And by living carelessly, what I mean is you're just doing what you want to do. You're living according to your own standards. You're living in a way that you think is good and you think is right, and you think that you have the authority and freedom to live however you want instead of submitting to God. And your careless living is why there is no traction and there is no growth in holiness or maturity because you're not thinking and you're not applying and you're just reacting and you're living based on whatever comes your way. That is not a good way to live and you will forget the way of the Lord. You, uh, this is a, a carelessness, a failure, an indifference, or a disregard. But when he says, do not let them depart from your heart, to depart here it means to be removed or to turn aside. And you know this. I bet you know this. When you are not diligently watching your soul, watching and examining your thoughts and your words and your actions, striving to submit to God's word, you not only forget, but those things that used to be so pressing on your mind, they depart. They're not there anymore. You lose direction. You lose discernment. You lose judgment. And you lose that, that precision clarity that you used to have the way that you live. And it's because any time that we're not accustomed to the word, we're not practicing his word, these things depart, we forget, and then we're not living faithfully anymore. And that ought to be convicting to all of us. 
But Moses is warning them, when you get over on the other side of this river, do not neglect his commands because you will forget him, you will forget them, and that will be detrimental to, to, to your, not only you, but to the nation as a whole. And on the other side of that, he gives the, the positive command. here. He says, you also don't want to forget and neglect because if you do, this will be detrimental to your children and your grandchildren. Not only will they be, they, God will kick them out of the land, which is what ended up happening. But when we look at this, there are eternal effects as well. If you do not diligently keep your own soul and teach your children, both by example and by word, then you're responsible. For, I mean, they're, they're going to grow up and they're going to be responsible for their own soul. But you failed to point them to Christ. And that is a terrifying thing for any parent. And, and he says this over and over and over in Deuteronomy. And we already saw it in this chapter to, to, uh, to make sure that they teach their, their sons and their grandsons. In Deuteronomy 6, he'll say it again, teach them diligently. Them is the words that I'm giving you today to your sons. Talk about them. Whatever you do, wherever you are, they should always be in front of you, always on your lips. He says it again at the end of Deuteronomy 6. He says, when your son asks, what are these statutes? What are these judgments? You tell him that God brought us out of Egypt. He brought us here. He did all this. He showed up on a mountain, gave us his word, and the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God always for our survival. And so, I mean, they're telling their children, if you forsake him, that's the end of this. Our being in this land is dependent on our submission and obedience to God. Again, apply that to us. Your, your ability to be in the eternal kingdom of God is dependent on your submission and obedience to him. Uh, but he says, it will be righteous for us if we're careful to observe his command before the Lord, just as he commanded us. Again, I, I'm not going to read them all, but over and over. I mean, teach your sons here again. Uh, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you, to fear him. Take to heart all the words. Command your sons. Observe them carefully. All the words of this law. Again, uh, oh yeah. And then, and then he, tells them, he tells them why. Because God showed up and gave us this word. In verses 4 through 10, or I'm sorry, verse, chapter 4, verses 10 through 14, he says, Remember. Don't forget this. The day you stood before the Lord at Horeb at Mount Sinai. Don't ever forget that. These are the ones that would have been 19 years and younger. But many of them would have watched God show up in fire and darkness on the mountain and give Moses the word and watch their parents rebel. They would have known this stuff. He's like, remember the day you were there when the Lord said, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear the word, my words. Think about that too. Again, I know this is a tangent. But if you can understand God's word, that was a grace gift. That didn't come from your own understanding. God let you understand his word. You ought to be so grateful that you comprehend the gospel and were able to repent. Even that is a gift of his grace. So that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on this earth. That they may teach their children. You came near. You stood at the foot of the mountain. The mountain burned with fire to the very heart of heaven. Darkness, cloud, and thick gloom when God showed up. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard sounds of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he, God, declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land you're going to possess. I mean, just over and over and over. You've been taught to perform. You've been taught to do. He gave it to me. I gave it to you. You've got to go do it. Tell your children. He told us when your children ask, tell them to do it. That's the emphasis. And he is reminding them over and over and over and over and over. God revealed himself to you 
so that you could hear him, so that you could fear him, and you must teach them. And again, that's directly applicable to us. You have God's word in your hand in that book so that you can listen to his voice, so that you can learn to fear the Lord, and so that you will tell your children about him. The Lord commanded them to tell their children what he had given to them. And again, it all comes back down to what he did at Horeb. And we're going to revisit that in chapter 5. So let me move on to this next point. Point number four, guard yourself from idols. So remember, success is dependent on our submission to, to, to live, to go in, to take the land. Obedience will validate the message. When you get over there, you must obey the Lord in order for uh, the, other, uh, the nations to, to see uh, your obedience and to believe. Respect and neglect will have generational effects. If you don't tell your children, this whole thing is over. And then number four, guard yourself from idols. This is important. And again, there's a direct New Testament uh, command exactly for us as the church. He says in verse 10 or 15, So watch yourselves carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image. So he's saying, again, watch yourself so that you don't make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure. And then he just goes through everything you could do. The likeness of male or female. The likeness of an animal that's on the earth. The likeness of a winged bird that flies in the sky. The likeness of anything that creeps on the ground. The likeness of any fish that's in the water on the earth below. Uh, beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven either and see the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the hosts of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Those which the Lord your God has allied to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out today of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. So again, he just basically tells them, guard themselves. Uh, make sure you watch yourself carefully. Again, this is the same word that we used for diligently earlier. With abundance, with strength, with force, you watch your soul. Again, we all think, oh, I would never serve another idol. Israel said that over and over and over. Joshua on the plains uh, or, uh, there at Shechem is telling them, I know you have idols, get rid of them. They're like, we would never forsake God. And while they had idols in their pockets, you know? So again, don't trust your own heart. Make sure you are watching yourself carefully and guarding yourself from idols. He goes, and when he says, do not, so that you do not act corruptly, it means that you don't pervert or taint or destroy both yourself and uh, um, uh, uh, your, your soul. Um, he says, don't make a graven image of any of these things. It reminded me exactly what Paul says in Romans 1. This is what we do. In Romans 1, look at what he says. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress truth and unrighteousness. This is what you are. This is what we do. This is what we are naturally, and this is what, how we live. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, God is saying, I have both built you and built creation that everyone knows that I exist and they see my power and my glory. So to not worship me is a purposeful suppression of all that you are and know. And he says... For even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks, but they became futile. This is where idolatry comes from. Your, 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 your understanding becomes worthless. Your foolish heart is darkened. And it says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And how did that foolishness express itself? They exchanged, exchanged the glory of God, the incorruptible God, 
for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Idolatry, idolatry is both um, uh, um, a, uh, a visible expression of the judgment of God, and it's what we do when, when we have gone insane, when we have suppressed truth, and now we are, we are futile and foolish and our hearts are darkened. Every religion, think about this. Again, you talk about this world, we're trying to coexist, and you know, and we don't we want to tolerate all religions. But if you look at the Bible, every religion, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, any Christian religion that perverts God's truth, or where his word is perverted, is both depraved, vile, and satanic lies. And they're purposed, very purposefully crafted to destroy life and soul. Every religion. This is the only truth. All things that, 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 that work against the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ come from futile speculation, foolish, darkened hearts, and they've exchanged the glory of God for lies. And they're purposed to destroy. So think about that. That's why we can't coexist. All those things destroy souls eternally forever in hell. And we're not okay with that. We speak truth in love. Um, and so just remember that. But this idolatry, again, Israel ran into idolatry in 1 John five twenty one at the very end of uh, 1 John. That's the very last thing he says. After you go through all these things, of, of, and the whole purpose of 1 John is to assure Christians they belong to Christ. You read it for the purpose of being assured that your faith is real. And the very last thing he says is guard yourselves from idols. Because you are prone to run to them. And so, again, just like he tells Israel, guard yourselves from idols or you will be destroyed out of this land. We, in the same way, need to guard ourselves from idols. All right, last point is this. I told you it was five sermons in one. Hang on. (laughs) The last one is do not forget the covenant. The very end of Deuteronomy, or I'm sorry, the very end of this first half, this is what he says. He says, Now the Lord was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I will die in this land. I shall not cross the Jordan. <laughs> but you'll cross the Jordan and take possession of this good land. I just got to say real quick, I mean, Moses is really wanting them to know that this is their fault, that he is not crossing <laughs> the Jordan. <laughs> uh, basically, at the very end, um, Moses, I mean, Moses already said this twice in these first four chapters, in verse, chapter 1 and in chapter 3. He's like, the Lord was angry at me on your account. The Lord was angry. He said, speak enough. So Moses, I feel like just one last time, is like, I don't get to go because of you. Now, Moses fully knowing that this was something that he did. But, but again, he tells him here, verse 23, watch yourselves. How many times has he said this? Keep yourself. Keep your soul. Watch your soul. Guard your soul and watch yourself. He says, watch yourself that you do not forget the covenant. Again, he said the same thing five different ways, but there's been you know, good application in all these things. Don't forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. And then there's a warning. And this is a terrifying warning. And it ought to hit home with us as well. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. He ends this whole thing by reminding them, guard yourself from idols. Keep all of his commands. Your, 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 your success in the land is completely dependent on your submission to his word. And he's given you everything you need. But I want to hit this last point here. The warning is that your God is a consuming fire. We know that, and again, put yourself in the context. 
they've seen this God. They've seen the consuming fire. In Exodus 24, it says, The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it for six days. And the seventh day, he called Moses from the midst of the cloud to go up. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of that mountain. When he says, your God is a consuming fire, they go, I know. I watched it. They've seen God in his glory and it was fire burning to the heavens and darkness cloud and thick gloom. So not only do they understand that in a way, it's not just a metaphorical like, yeah, yeah, his wrath is like a consuming fire. He's like, they're like, yeah, no, we saw that. Uh, he also promises them in Deuteronomy 9, it is the Lord your God who's crossing before you. Now, if the consuming fire is consuming in front of you and you're following him, that's a great place to be, right? You just don't want to be the recipient of the consummation. (laughs) You don't want the fire to consume you. And so he says, he's going over before you as a consuming fire. And he says, he will destroy everything. He'll destroy the Canaanites. He'll subdue them so that you will drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as he's spoken. So again, God always consumes his enemies. God always destroys those who stand against him. And so, The Israelites have seen his fire on the mountain. They know he's going to go before them and consume the Canaanites. Moses is warning them, don't act like the Canaanites and get on the other side of the fire and be part of his judgment. And that warning is directly applicable to us as well. In Hebrews 12, it's terrifying. God tells the Christians, see to it that you don't refuse him. Now, again, he's talking to Christians. It's like a a class like this. People that do believe, make sure you don't refuse the Lord who is speaking. He says, for if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape who turned away from him who warns from heaven? The point there is just like the Israelites were consumed by God because they refused him, you make sure that you don't refuse the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has given us eternal life through dying on the cross for our sins, for something here in this life. Because all that you have to look forward to is judgment. It says, his voice shook the earth then, but now he promises, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. When God spoke at Mount Sinai, the the earth quaked and trembled. But at the end, he's going to shake the whole universe with the word of his power and glory as he comes in judgment to consume all of his enemies. He says, this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of all things that we shake and created things. So this is the end of creation. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And again, I just wanted to point that out because it's just a reminder. Again, the Israelites... The Israelites, when they're hearing this, they understand what he's saying. The God that you saw on Mount Sinai is going to go before you and consume all your enemies. You make sure you don't engage in idolatry, immorality, all that sort of stuff. Your life is dependent upon your submission. You've seen what disobedience does. You just watched everybody die at Baal of Peor. Then you make sure that you teach your children so that they go into the land. They'll, keep, they'll stay in the land. And don't forget who your God is. He is the God that will destroy and consume your enemies. But if you turn on him, then he will also consume you. And don't forget that he is a holy God and a jealous God. And again, that ought to be, that ought to give you chills and that ought to make you go, I will revere him and fear him and follow him all my life. The last thing I want to do is be standing on the other side of him, fighting against him for something in this world. 
So do not forsake him for anything here. So, like I said, these are exhortations to the, the second generation as they cross over the Jordan River, but they have direct implications to us. Success is dependent on our submission. Obedience validates the message that we give when we share the gospel of Christ. Our respect of or neglect of the commands of God will have generational effects on our children. And we must guard ourselves from idols and never forget the, the word that God has given us. Never forget the promise that Christ has given us in the new covenant of eternal life. And forsake him for anything in this world. Thank you for being so patient. I know that was a long one. Uh, so that was uh, we'll, the first half of Deuteronomy 4. Next week, we'll talk about end time stuff, uh, kingdom stuff. It'll be great. That's the second half of Deuteronomy 4. Let me pray for us.